24. This is our road. Then making up for lost time, he set him down at a friend's house, where he procured some tea and fresh horses, and he went in safety, renewing his horses at small expense, until late at night, when he suffered from a most unfortunate robbery, he had not money at hand to pay the conductor, they turned into a public house, where a crowd of drunken people were celebrating the carnival, he drew out some paper money to get change, when the crowd coming round, someone seized his papers, among which were several ruble notes, his invaluable passport, and a note in which he had minutely inscribed all the towns and villages he must pass through on the road to Archangel, he was in despair, the very first day, a quarter of his money was gone, and the only thing by which he hoped to evade suspicion, his passport, he dared not appeal to the police, and was obliged to submit, regret and hesitation were not to be thought of, he soon found himself on the high road to Irbit, crowded with an innumerable mass of sledges, going or returning to the fair, it is the season of gain and good humor, and the people show it by unbounded gaiety, Piotrowski took courage, returned the salutations of the passers-by for how could he be distinguished in such a crowd, the gates of Irbit were reached on the third day, halt, and shew your passport, cried an official, but added in a whisper, give me twenty kopecks, and pass quickly, the demand was willingly gratified, and with some difficulty he procured a night's lodging, lying on the floor amidst a crowd of peasants, who had previously supped on radish soup, dried fish, oatmeal gruel, with oil and pickled cabbage, up at daybreak, he took care to make the orthodox salutations, and passing rapidly through the crowded town, he walked out of the opposite gate, for, henceforwards, his scanty funds demanded that the journey should be made on foot, in the midst of a heavily falling snow, he managed to keep the track, avoiding the villages, and, when hungry, drawing a piece of frozen bread from his bag, at nightfall, he buried himself in the forest, hollowed a deep hole in the snow, and found a hard but warm bed, where he gained the repose he so greatly needed, another hard day, with a dried cutting wind, forced him to ask for shelter at night in a cottage, which was granted without hesitation. He described himself as a workman, going to the iron foundries at Mokotol, on the Ural Mountains, whilst the supper was preparing, he dried his clothes, and stretched himself on a bench with inexpressible satisfaction, he fancied he had neglected no precautions, his prayers and salutations had been made, and yet suspicion was awakened, as it appeared, by the sight of his three shirts, which no peasant possesses, three men entered, and roughly shook him from sleep demanding his passport, by what right do you ask for it, are you police, no, but we are inhabitants of the village, and can you enter houses, and ask for passports, who can say whether you do not mean to rob me of my papers, but my answer is ready, I am Leverenti Kuzmin, going to Bokotol, and it is not the first time I have passed through the country, he then entered into details of the road and the fair at Irbit, ending by showing his permission to pass, which, as it bore a stamp, satisfied these ignorant men, forgive us, said they, we thought you were an escaped convict, some of them passed this way, henceforward, he dared not seek the shelter of a house, from the middle of February to the beginning of April, in the midst of one of the severest winters ever known, his couch was in the snow, frozen bread was his food for days together, and the absence of warm elements brought him face to face with the terrible specters of cold and hunger, the Urals were reached, and he began to climb their wooded heights, 
On passing through a little village at nightfall, a voice cried, Who is there? A traveler. Well, would you like to come and sleep here? May God recompense you. Yes, if it will not inconvenience you. An aged couple live there good people, who prepared a meager repast, which seemed a feast to Piotrowski, the greatest comfort of all being that he could take off his clothes. They gave him his breakfast, and would not accept any remuneration but his warm and cordial thanks. One evening Piotrowski's life was nearly extinct. The way was lost. The hail pierced his skin. His supply of bread was exhausted, and after vainly dragging his weary limbs, he fell into a kind of torpor. A loud voice roused him. What are you doing here? I am making a pilgrimage to the monastery of Solovetsk. But the storm prevented my seeing the track, and I have not eaten for several days. It is not surprising. We who live on the spot often wander away. There, drink that. The speaker gave him a bottle containing some brandy, which burned him so fearfully, that in his pain he danced about. Now try to calm yourself, said the good Samaritan, giving him some bread and dried fish, which Piotrowski ate ravenously, saying, I thank you with all my heart. May God bless you for your goodness. Ah, well, do not say so much, we are both Christians. Now, try to walk a little. He was a trapper, and led him into the right path, pointing out a village in where he could get rest and refreshment. Piotrowski managed to crawl to the place, and then fainted away. When he recovered himself, he asked for radish soup, but could not swallow it, and toward noon he fell asleep on the bench never awaking until the same time on the next day, when the host roused him, sleep, rest, and warmth restored him, and he again started on his long pilgrimage, the town of Vilikiustig was reached, where he determined to change his character and become a pilgrim, going to pray to the holy images of Solovetsk, on the White Sea, there are four of these holy places to which pious Russians resort, and everywhere the wayfarers are well received, hospitality and alms being freely dispensed to those who are going to pray for the peace of the donor. Passports are not rigorously exacted, and he hoped to join himself to a company, trusting to be less marked than if alone. As he was standing irresolute in the marketplace, a young man accosted him, and finding that they were bound to the same place, invited him to join their party. There were about twenty, but no less than two thousand were in the city on their way waiting until the thaw should have opened the duenna for the rafts and boats which would transport them to Archangel, and then to Solovetsk. It was a scene for Chaucer, the half-idiot, who sought to be a saint, the knave who played upon the charity of others, and the astute hypocrite. The rafts are loaded with corn, and the pilgrims receive a free passage, or a small sum of money is given them, if they consent to row, from forty to sixty sailors being required for each. The oars consisting of a thin fir tree. Piotrowski was only too happy to increase his small store of money by working, at the break of day, before starting, the captain cried, seat yourselves, and pray to God, everyone squatted down like a Muslim for a moment, then rose and made a number of salutations and crossings, and next, down to the poorest, each threw a small piece of money into the river to secure a propitious voyage, fifteen days passed, during which Piotrowski learned to be an expert oarsman, then the golden spires of Archangel rose before them, a cry of joy was uttered by all, and the rowers broke off the lower parts of their oars with a frightful crash. According to the universal custom, it was a heartfelt prayer of gratitude that Piotrowski raised to God for having brought him thus far in safety. How pleasant was the sight of the ships, 
with their flags of a thousand colors, after the snow and eternal forests of the Urals, but there was again disappointment, he wandered along the piers, but could not find a single vessel bound for France or Germany, and not daring to enter the cafes, where perhaps the captains might have been, he left Archangel in sadness, determined to skirt the coast towards Onyega, he would thus pass the celebrated monastery without the necessity of stopping, and pretend that he was proceeding to Novgorod and Moscow on the same pious pilgrimage, through marshes and blighted fir plantations the weary wayfarers sped, the white sea rising frequently into storms of the utmost grandeur, but the season was lovely, and the sun warm, so that camping out offered less hardship, the wolves howled around him, but happily he never saw them, many soldiers, who were their poles, were established at different points to take charge of the canals, having reached Vitagra, he was accosted on the shore by a peasant, who asked where he was going, on hearing his story, he said, you are the man I want, I am going to St. Petersburg, my boat is small, and you can assist me to row, the crafty fellow evidently intended to profit by the pilgrim's arms without wages, but, after a long debate, he agreed to supply Piotrowski with food during the transport, it seemed strange, indeed, to go to the capital like running into the jaws of the lion but he seized every occasion to pass on, lest his papers should be asked for, as they coasted down through Lake Ladoga and the Neva, they took in some women as passengers, who were his servants, and had been home to see their parents, one of them, an aged washerwoman, was so teased by the others, that Piotrowski took her apart, and in return she offered him some very useful assistance, my daughter, she said, will come to meet me, and she will find you a suitable lodging, it will be guessed with what joy he accepted the proposal, and during all the time spent in the boat, no one came to ask for passports, the house she took him to was sufficiently miserable, as the Russians say, it was the bare ground, with the wrist for a pillow, he asked his hostess if he must see the police to arrange the business of his passport, Mumber, she said, if you only stay a few days, it is useless, they have become so exacting, that they would require me to accompany you, and my time is too precious, as he passed along the quays, looking for a ship, his eyes rested on one to sail for Riga on the following morning, he could scarcely master his emotion, the pilot on board called out, if you want a place to Riga, come here, I certainly want one, but I am too poor to sail in a steamer, it would cost too much, he named a very small sum, and said, come, why do you hesitate? I only arrived yesterday, and the police have not vice my passport, that will occupy three days, go without a vice, be here at seven o'clock, and wait for me, both were to their time, the sailor said, give me some money, and handed him a yellow paper, the clock struck, the barrier was opened, and, like a dream, he was safely on the ocean, from Riga he went through Courland and Lithuania, the difficulty of crossing the Russian frontier into Prussia was still to be managed. He chose the daytime, and when sentinels had each turned their backs, he jumped over the wall of the first of the three glassy. No noise was heard. The second was tried, and the firing of pistols showed that he was perceived. He rushed on to the third, and, breathless and exhausted, gained a little wood, where for many hours he remained concealed. He was in Prussia, wandering on through Myrtle, Tilsit and Königsberg, he decided at the last place to take a ship the next morning to Elbing, where he would be near to Posen, and among his compatriots, sitting down on a heap of stones, 
he intended taking refuge for the night in a cornfield, but sleep overcame him, and he was rudely awakened in the darkness by a policeman. His stammering and confused replies awakened suspicion, and to his shame and grief, he was carried off to prison. He announced himself as a French cotton spinner, but returning from Russia, and without a passport, not a word he said was believed. At length, after a month's detention, weary of being considered a concealed malefactor, he asked to speak to M. Fleury, a French advocate, who assisted at his trial. To him he confessed the whole truth. Nothing could equal his advocate's consternation and astonishment. What a misfortune, he said. We must give you up to the Russians. They have just sent many of your countrymen across the frontier. There is but one way. Write to Count Eulenburg, tell your story, and trust to his mercy. After ten days he received a vague reply, desiring him to have patience. The affair got wind in the town, and a gentleman came to him, asking if he would accept him as bail. Efforts had been made in his favor, and the police were ready to set him free. M. Kemke, his kind friend, took him home, and entertained him for a week, but an order came from Berlin to send the prisoner back to Russia, and he received warning in time to escape. Letters to various friends on the way were given him, to facilitate his journey and just four years after he had left Paris he reached it in safety again, after having crossed the Urals, slept for months in the snow, jumped over the Russian frontier in the midst of balls, and passed through so many sufferings and privations. Chapter XXXVII I remained in Irkutsk until snow fell, and the winter roads were suitable for travel. One day the moving portion of the city was on wheels, the next saw it gliding on runners. The little sleighs of the Isvotchiks are exactly like those of St. Petersburg and Moscow. Miniature affairs where you sit with your face within six inches of the driver's back, and cannot take a friend at your side without much crowding. They move rapidly, and it is a fortunate provision that they are cheap. In all large cities and towns of Russia many Isvotchiks go to spend the winter, with a horse and little sleigh and a cash capital sufficient to buy a license. One of these enterprising fellows will set up in business. Nobody thinks of walking in Moscow or St. Petersburg, unless his journey or his purse is very short. It is said there are 30,000 sleighs for public hire in St. Petersburg alone, during the winter months, and two-thirds that number in Moscow. The interior towns are equally well supplied in proportion to their population. One may naturally suppose that accidents are frequent where there are many vehicles and fast driving is the fashion. Accidents are rare from the fact that drivers are under severe penalties if they run over anyone. Furthermore the horses are quick and intelligent, and being driven without blinkers, can use their eyes freely. To my mind this plan is better than ours, and most foreigners living in Russia are inclined to adopt it. Considered as an ornament a blinker decorates a horse about as much as an eye shade does a man. With the first fall of snow, I began preparations for departure. I summoned a tailor and gave orders for a variety of articles in fur and sheepskin for the road. He measured me for a coat, a cap, a pair of stockings, and a sleigh robe, all in sheepskin. He then took the size of my ears for a pair of lappets, and proposed fur socks to be worn under the stockings. When the accumulated result of his labors was piled upon the floor of my room, I was alarmed at its size, and wondered if it could ever be packed in a single sleigh. Out of a bit of sable skin a lady acquaintance constructed a mitten for my nose, to be worn when the temperature was lowest. It was not an improvement to one's personal appearance though very conducive to comfort. 
To travel by periclognoi changing the vehicle at every station is bad enough in summer but ten times bad in winter. To turn out every two or three hours with the thermometer any distance below zero, and shift baggage and furs from one sleigh to another is an absolute nuisance. Very few persons travel by periclognoi in winter, and one does not find many sleighs at the post stations from the fact that they are seldom demanded. Nearly all travelers buy their sleighs before starting and sell them when their journeys are ended. I surveyed the Irkutsk market and found several sleighs up for sale. Throughout Siberia a sleigh manufactured at Kazan is preferred, it being better made and more commodious than its rivals. My attention was called to several vehicles of local manufacture but my friends advised me not to try them. I saw a Kazansky Kibitka and with the aid of an intelligent Isvoshchik succeeded in finding one. Its purchase was accomplished in a manner peculiarly Russian. The seller was a Miskanin or Russian merchant of the peasant class. Accompanied by a friend I called at his house and our negotiation began over a lunch and a bottle of Nalifka. We said nothing on the subject nearest my heart and his, for at least a half hour, but conversed on general topics. My friend at length dropped a hint that I thought of taking up my residence at Irkutsk. This was received with delight, and a glass of Nalifka, supplementary to at least half a dozen glasses I had already swallowed. Why don't you come to Slays at once, and settle the matter? I asked. He probably knows what we want, and if we keep on at this rate I shall need a sleigh to go home in. Don't be impatient, said my friend. You don't understand these people, you must angle them gently. When you want to make a trade, begin a long way from it. If you want to buy a horse, pretend that you want to sell a cow. But don't mention the horse at first. If you do you will never succeed. We hedged very carefully and finally reached the subject. This was so overpowering that we took a drink while the merchant ordered the sleigh dragged into the courtyard. We had another glass before we adjourned for the inspection, a later one when we returned to the house, and another as soon as we were seated. After this our negotiations proceeded at a fair pace, but there were many vacuums of language that required liquid filling. After endeavoring to lower his price, I closed with him and we clenched the bargain with a drink. Slaves were in great demand, as many persons were setting out for Russia, and I made sure of my purchase by paying on the spot and taking a glass of Nalifka, as a finale to the transaction. He urged me to drink again, begged my photograph, and promised to put an extra something to the sleigh. The Siberian peasant classes are much like the Chinese in their manner of bargaining, neither begins at the business itself but at something entirely different. A great deal of time, tea, and tobacco is consumed before the antagonists are fairly met. When the main subject is reached they gradually approach and conclude the bargain about where both expected and intended. An American would come straight to the point, and dealing with either of the above races his bluntness would endanger the whole affair. In many matters this patient angling is advantageous, and nowhere more so than in diplomacy. Everyone will doubtless acknowledge the Russians and surpassed in diplomatic skill. They possess the faculty of touching gently, and playing with their opponents, to a higher degree than any nation of Western Europe. Other things being equal, this ability will bring success. There are several descriptions of sleigh for Siberian travel. At the head, stands the Vajshuk, a box-like affair with a general resemblance to an American coach on runners. It has a door at each side and glass windows and is long enough for one to lie at full length. Three persons with limited baggage can find plenty of room in a vajshuk. A kibitka is shaped much like a tarantas, or like a New England chaise stretched to about seven feet long by four in width. 
there is a sort of apron that can be let down from the hood and fastened with straps and buckles to the boot. The boot can be buttoned to the sides of the vehicle and completely encloses the occupants. The badshock is used by families or ladies, but the kibitka is generally preferred by men on account of the ability to open it in fine weather, and close it at night or in storms. A sleigh much like this but less comfortable is called a pavoska. In either of them, the driver sits on the forward part with his feet hanging over the side. His perch is not very secure, and on a rough road he must exercise care to prevent falling off. Why don't you have a better seat for your driver? I asked of my friend, when negotiating for a sleigh. Oh, said he, this is the best way as he cannot go to sleep. If he had a better place he would sleep and lose time by slow traveling. A sleigh much used by Russian merchants is shaped like an elongated mill hopper. It has enormous carrying capacity, and in bad weather can be covered with matting to exclude cold and snow. It is large, heavy, and cumbersome, and adapted to slow travel, and when much luggage is to be carried, all these concerns are on runners about 30 inches apart, and generally shod with iron. On each side there is a fender or outrigger which serves the double purpose of diminishing injury from collisions and preventing the overturn of the sleigh. It is a stout pole attached to the forward end of the sleigh, and sloping downward and outward toward the rear where it is two feet from the runner, and held by strong braces. On a level surface it does not touch the snow, but should the sleigh tilt from any cause the outrigger will generally prevent an overturn in collision with other sleighs. The fender plays an important part. I have been occasionally dashed against sleds and sleighs when the chances of a smash-up appeared brilliant. The fenders met like a pair of fencing foils, and there was no damage beyond the shock of our meeting. The horses are harnessed in the Russian manner, one being under a yoke in the shafts, and the others, up to five or six, attached outside. There is no seat in the interior of the sleigh. Travelers arrange their baggage and furs to as good a level as possible and fill the crevices with hay or straw. They sit, recline, or lie at their option. Pillows are a necessity of winter travel. I exchanged my trunk for a kimadan of enormous capacity, and long enough to extend across the bottom, of my sleigh, for the first thousand versts, to cross the Yarsk. I arranged to travel with a young officer of engineers whose baggage consisted of two or three hundred pounds of geological specimens. For provisions we ordered beef, cabbage soup, little cakes like men's turnovers, and a few other articles. Tea and sugar were indispensable, and had a prominent place. Our soups, meat, pies, etc. were frozen and only needed thawing at the stations to be ready for use. The day before my departure was the peculiar property of Saint Anacantife, the only saint who belongs especially to Siberia. Everybody kept the occasion in full earnest. The services commencing the previous evening when nearly everybody got drunk, I had a variety of preparations in the shape of mending, making bags, tying up bundles and the like. But though I offered liberal compensation neither manservant nor maidservant would lend assistance. Labor was not to be had on any terms and I was obliged to do my own packing. There are certain saints days in the year when a Russian peasant will no more work than would appear in on Sunday. All who could do so on the day above mentioned visited the church four miles from Irkutsk, where Saint Inakantai flies buried. I occupied the fashionable hours of the two days before my departure in making farewell visits according to Russian etiquette. Not satisfied with their previous courtesy my friends arranged a dinner at the club rooms for the last evening of my stay at Irkutsk. The other public dinners were of a masculine character, 
but the farewell entertainment possessed the charm of the presence of fifteen or twenty ladies, General Shalashnikov, Governor of Irkutsk, and Acting Governor General during the absence of General Korsakov, presided at the table. We dined directly before the portraits of the last and present emperors of Russia, and as I looked at the likeness of Nicholas I thought I had never seen it half as amiable. After the dinner the tables disappeared with magical rapidity and a dance began. While I was talking in a corner behind a table, a large album containing views of Irkutsk was presented to me as a souvenir of my visit. The Golova was prominent in the presentation, and when it was ended he urged me to be his vis-a-vis in a quadrille. Had he asked me to walk a tightrope or interpret a passage of Sanskrit, I should have been about as able to comply. My education in the light fantastic has been extremely limited and my acquaintances will testify that nature has not adapted me to achievements in the Terpsichorean art. I resisted all entreaties to join the dance up to that evening. I urged that I never attempted it a dozen times in my life, and not at all within ten years. The Golova declared he had not danced in twenty-five years, and knew as little of the art as I did. There was no more to be said. I resigned myself to the pleasures awaiting me and ventured on the floor very much as an elephant goes on a newly frozen milk pond. Personal diffidence and a regard for truth forbid a laudatory account of my success. I did walk through a quadrille, but when it came to the mazurka I was as much out of place as a blind man in a picture gallery. My arrangement to travel with the geologic officer and his heavy baggage fell through an hour before our starting time. A now plan was organized and included my taking Captain Paul in my sleigh to Krasnoyarsk. Two ladies of our acquaintance were going thither, and I gladly waited a few hours for the pleasure of their company. When my preparations were completed, I drove to the house of Madame Rodstvani whence we were to set out. The madam and her daughter were to travel in a large kabitka, and had bestowed two servants with much baggage and provisions in a vedshuk. With our three vehicles we made a dignified procession. We dined at three o'clock, and were ready to start an hour later. Just before leaving the house all were seated around the principal room, and for a minute there was perfect silence. On rising all who professed the religion of the Greek church bowed to the holy picture and made the sign of the cross. This custom prevails throughout Russia, and is never omitted when a journey is to be commenced. There was a gay party to conduct us to the first station, conveniently situated only eight miles away. At the ferry we found the largest assemblage I saw in Irkutsk. Not accepting the crowd at the fire, the ferry boat was on the other side of the river, and as I glanced across I saw something that caused me to look more intently. It was a little past sunset, and the gathering night showed somewhat indistinctly the American and Russian flags floating side by side on the boat. My national colors were in the majority. The scene was rendered more picturesque by a profusion of Chinese lanterns lighting every part of the boat. The Golova stood at my side to enjoy my astonishment. It was to his kindness and attention that this farewell courtesy was due. He had the honor of unfurling the first American flag that ever floated over the Angara and his little surprise raised a goodly sized lump in the throat of his guest. Our party was so large that the boat made two journeys to ferry us over the water. I remained till the last, and on the bank of the river bade adieu to Irkutsk and its hospitable citizens. I may not visit them again, but I can never forget the open-hearted kindness I enjoyed. The Siberians have a climate of great severity, but its frosts and snows have not been able to chill the spirit of genuine courtesy, as every traveler in that region can testify. Hospitality is a custom of the country, 
and all the more pleasing because heartily and cheerfully bestowed. The shades of night were falling fast as I climbed the river bank, and began my sleigh ride toward the west. The arched gateway at Irkutsk close by the ferry landing, is called the Moscow entrance, and is said to face directly toward the ancient capital. As I reached the road, I shouted, Poshal, to the Yemshik, and we dashed off in fine style, at the church or monastery six bursts away. I overtook our party. The ladies were in the chapel offering their prayers for a prosperous journey. When they emerged we were ready to go forward over a road not remarkable for its smoothness. At the first station our friends joined us in taking tea, cups, glasses, cakes, champagne bottles, cakes and cold meats, crept somehow from mysterious corners in our vehicles. The station master was evidently accustomed to visits like this, as his rooms were ready for our reception. We were two hours in making our dues, and consuming the various articles provided for the occasion. There was a general kissing all around at the last moment. We packed the ladies in their sleigh, and then entered our own. As we left the station our friends joined their voices in a farewell song that rang in our ears till lost in the distance, and drowned by nearer sounds. Our bells jingled merrily in the frosty air as our horses sped rapidly along the road. We closed the front of our sleigh, and settled among our furs and pillows. The night was cold, but in my thick wrappings I enjoyed a tropical warmth and did not heed the low state of the thermometer. Our road for seventy versts lay along the bank of the Angara. A thick fog filled the valley and seemed to hug close to the river. In the morning every part of our sleigh except at the points of friction, was white with frost. Each little fiber projecting from our cover of canvas and matting became a miniature stalactite, and the head of every nail, bolt, and screw, buried itself beneath a mass like oxidized silver. Everything had seized upon and congealed some of the moisture floating in the atmosphere. Our horses were of the color, or no color, of rabbits in January, it was only by brushing away the frost that the natural tint of their hair could be discovered, and sometimes there was a great deal of frost adhering to them. During my stay at Irkutsk I noticed the prevalence of this fog or frost cloud, it usually formed during the night and was thickest near the river, in the morning it enveloped the whole city, but when the sun was an hour or two in the heavens, the mist began to melt away. It remained longest over the river, and I was occasionally in a thick cloud on the bank of the Angara when the atmosphere a hundred yards away was perfectly clear. The moisture congealed on every stationary object. Houses and fences were cased in ice, its thickness varying with the condition of the weather. Trees and bushes became masses of crystals, and glistened in the sunlight as if formed of diamonds. I could never wholly rid myself of the impression that some of the trees were fountains caught and frozen when in full action. The frost played curious tricks of artistic skill, and its delineations were sometimes marvels of beauty. Anyone who has visited St. Petersburg in winter remembers the effect of a fog f.